Welcome to this Sunday's message from the King's Church Mid-Sussex. Hello and welcome to King's Church. I'm Will van der Hart and I'm here to bring a little bit of teaching in your well-being series, specifically today looking at the issue of relational health. And I'm going to do that by continuing your series in 1 Kings, uh, looking particularly at chapter 19 today, but also referencing some of Jesus' teaching in Luke chapter 10. So we'll weave that together a little bit later on. Um, I want to sort of begin, if you like, by outlining the fact that over 15 years of personal study in areas of psychology and theology, I found that the uh, contemporary wisdom, if you like, particularly around human flourishing, and the ancient wisdom of Scripture barely ever diverges. That the great psychology, the great wisdom, if you like, is held in the Bible. And that's probably most evident within the discipline of social psychology, that is, uh, exploration of our thoughts and feelings and behaviours and how they're influenced by relational environments around us, so particularly the idea of relational health and well-being. If you like, at the core, the starting point for me in this is, is that the Bible begins with the most fundamental and basic psychological truth in Genesis 2 verse 18, that it's not good for man to be alone. Now, sadly, I think the church has, if you like, bracketed this teaching exclusively to marriage. So we tend to only teach Genesis 2.18 when we're thinking or talking around marriage. But actually, God doesn't say it's not good for man not to be married or it's not good for man not to procreate. Although, obviously, it might be, but he doesn't say that explicitly. He says explicitly it's not good for man to be alone. So there's a diagnosis there of something significantly negative. And I think aloneness, if you like, and loneliness, the product of aloneness, continues to have a catastrophically negative effect on our lives today. And if you like, makes us relationally impoverished. And you know, I, I think knowing that, that if you like, the, the, the brackets of the Bible open with a statement around aloneness or loneliness is really significant to us as we explore this passage. In terms of physical health, a lack of social connection has been determined to have uh, you know, a far more negative effect on our health and well-being uh, than obesity and smoking uh, and even high blood pressure. Inversely, a strong social connection can improve your longevity in life by up to 50%. You can imagine going to see your doctor and saying, you know, I'm, I'm a smoker and I kind of want to quit and, you know, I've got high blood pressure and I need to see to bring that down and I'm a little overweight and I want to kind of go on a diet. Um, you know, is there anything you can do to help me? Your doctor might turn around and say, well, I really think you need to build your friendships because your friendships and your relationships could have a more significant effect on your physical health and well-being than any of those other things that you were going to do to improve your health. Not that they're not important, but... Um, it's your friendships which will have the most significant potential effect on your longevity. So that's physical health. In terms of emotional health, social isolation has a devastating impact upon our mental health and well-being. But inversely, social connection can dramatically lower our experience of anxiety and of depression, as well as actually improving our cognitive function genuinely and what's called our executive function. That is our ability to make good choices. Ultimately, uh, our relational health helps us to make better decisions, or we make better decisions together. Now, whilst I hope you find these facts significant, I really want to zero in on the spiritual impact of togetherness for you today. 
You see, the bookends of the Bible, as we've said, open at one end with loneliness and at the other close with togetherness. God acknowledges in Genesis chapter 2 that it's not good for man to be alone. And then in John 17, 21, Jesus prays, I pray that they may uh, be one just as you and I are one, as you're in me, Father, and as I am in you. So the bookends of the Bible open with loneliness and they close with togetherness. You could actually, uh, if you like, simplify the entire purpose of the scriptures as bringing those who are isolated in sin to togetherness in God through Jesus Christ. Think about that as a kind of strap line when someone asks you, you know, what's it mean to be a Christian? What's the purpose of the Christian life? The Christian life is about bringing together those isolated in sin to togetherness in God through the person of Jesus Christ. But you know, the danger of simplification is that we don't lose sight of the purpose, but we lose sight of the praxis. And Christians have long fallen into the trap of believing that their relational well-being, their interpersonal relationships, are not actually that important. And so what we've done is, you know, we've focused on heaven, but failed to model on earth what heaven is really all about. And that mirrors society at large where independence and isolation are celebrated. Um, I love extreme sports and you know, me and my uh, boss Tim, we talk a lot about climbing, he's a keen climber. And there's no doubt that there's a, a huge amount of prestige around what's called the soloist, the guy who climbs the mountain on his own, the guy who walks to the North Pole on his own, or the woman, or the, 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 the woman who sails around the world on her own, or the guy who you know, does the endurance race on his own, unsupported, through the jungle, through the desert. This idea that actually alone is better is really ingrained in our society. But the kingdom of God is all about not being alone, about alone not being better, about being together, because together is better. And so as Christians being really keen to make the purpose of the kingdom of God a reality on earth, we've missed if you like, the virtue of embodying the message that we're sharing with the world. And as a result, loneliness is not just an issue in the world around us. Loneliness is a, an issue amongst us, in our churches, in our connect groups, in our, um, in our church families, and in the experience of people who, who share our faith. You know, we, we need to rethink our priorities and our purposes and our leadership models in order that we can live and lead in a way that reflects the values and purposes of the kingdom of God, not that idol of independence that I've talked about. So if we turn into um, Luke chapter 10, following uh, this little passage uh, here, we see that Jesus sends out the 72. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them out two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. Go, I'm sending you out like lambs amongst wolves. Do not take a purse or a bag or sandals, and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say peace upon this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking whatever they may give you, for the worker deserves their wages. Do not move around from house to house. Well, when we compare uh, the experience of Elijah here, who's just come down the mountain having defeated the prophets of Baal, uh, his sacrifice has been eaten up by fire, he finds himself in this situation of 
of isolation. He is effectively sent out in twos with his servant, but he is now in this difficult circumstance. And I'm going to mirror these two uh, settings, if you like, if you like, the what not to do from 1 Kings in the to do uh, from Luke chapter 10, because I, I never like just negative psychology, which tells you everything that's going wrong and how not to do it. I want to know how we should do it, and I want to uh, lean into the Luke chapter 10 passage for that. In Luke 10, Jesus sent out his disciples to fulfill the purposes of the kingdom of God. And I think the methodology really matters. You know, interestingly, he sends 72 disciples out, but he sends them out in pairs, just like Elijah was sent out with his own team. He wasn't called to be Elijah the superhero. He was called to be Elijah the prophet of God and supported by others in prayer and in practical means. And when Jesus, he sends out the 72 to these different towns and cities, you know, he he, if you like, makes a kingdom sacrifice. That is that it would be much more expedient to send out 72 disciples to 72 towns. If you send disciples out in twos, you get half the opportunity. You're going to get, you know, you're going to have an opportunity to go to 31, uh, sorry, to, to 36 towns and villages, my maths are going off whack, uh, 36 towns and villages, not 72. And I think um, that's a problem. It seems like a massive sacrifice. It sounds inefficient. It sounds unnecessary. After all, the power of God is going with each and every one of them. But God still calls them to go in pairs. When Elijah was on the mountain, he was never called to be Elijah on his own. He was Elijah with God and supported by others. He was there not as a soloist, but as a member of a community of faith. So, so what's Jesus pointing to by sending out these 72 disciples uh, with relation to their emotional health. Well, firstly, I think Jesus was demonstrating the care of the individual. That's the care of, his, of their mental and emotional and physical health. Jesus models the kingdom because he's aware of the impact of isolation. When we look back in to 1 Kings, we see Elijah, who is in a circumstance of threat, and his emotional health begins to diminish significantly when he's alone. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But Jesus sends out his disciples in pairs because ultimately the work of the kingdom is not meant to be bad for the workers. It's hard for the workers, but it's not meant to be bad for the workers. Secondly, Jesus demonstrates that what he's offering uh, in terms of the kingdom ministry is a prophetic offering. And that means that our togetherness work, our relationally healthy work in the kingdom of God, is a sign prophetically of what God is actually offering to the world. If God is calling the world into togetherness from isolation, why would he isolate the workers and send them out in isolation? It's not a prophetic sign of what he intends to do for us all. So Jesus is speaking prophetically about being sent out together. And again, when we see Elijah come down the mountain, you know, he's fulfilled a great victory for the people of God. He's demonstrated the power of God. God has been with him and shown his might and his majesty. We see the danger of exacting kingdom ministry and then finding yourself in isolation. And thirdly, Jesus is demonstrating that the economy of God is different to the economy of man. Yes, 72 uh, disciples to 72 towns sounds efficient, but God doesn't offer us efficiency in the way that man does. God's kingdom is inefficiently efficient. When you ask him, if you like, to fill your cup, he fills it to overflowing. Uh, when you ask God to fill your nets with fish, he fills them to breaking point. Uh, when Jesus teaches on the hillside to 5,000, he doesn't give everyone just 
enough to satisfy themselves. He gives enough. So there's 12 baskets worth left over. Uh, when, when God waters the fields and produces a crop, he doesn't produce a crop that's tenfold or thirtyfold or, or even fiftyfold. He produces a crop that's a hundredfold. And so God's economy is inefficiently efficient. And here, Jesus sends out the 72 in pairs as a sign of the inefficiently efficient kingdom, that he always gives more than the bare necessity. Now, I want us to think about this uh, lavishness of God um, in the light of our relational health, because we are facing significant and worrying trends in loneliness that began well before coronavirus and lockdown. Uh, in 1985, people claimed on average to have three personal confidants. That was three people they felt able to talk to about any circumstance in their life. But by 2004, that number had reduced down to just one. People said, I, I've just got one friend, one family member who I can call to talk about the things that I'm challenged by. In 2014, 53% of people in the UK reported feeling some feelings of loneliness. But in 2020, 2.6 million people said they felt, they felt lonely often or always. But it's not just faceless and nameless people out there who are struggling with loneliness. Lifeway research showed that 55% of pastors, of church leaders, feel lonely often. Now, if we can't experience the power of togetherness in the church, then what have we got to offer a broken, lonely and hurting world? What, what, what should we do about this then? And how can we respond to improve our relational health? Well, let's look again at some revelation from Luke chapter 10 and from 1 Kings chapter 19. There are three common obstacles to uh, the power of our togetherness uh, and, and our relational health specifically. The first one is that when the pressure comes on, the first thing we sacrifice are the relationships that we're called to. In, in 1 Kings 19, what we see is the pressure comes on because uh, we've got Jezebel sending a messenger, messenger to Elijah saying, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow you effectively aren't dead. So this is a high level of pressure that suddenly come on. And it says Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. So when the pressure comes on, the first thing that we see is a response, a fear response, and then a running for life. That's the first thing that happens. Now, when you're going to do a big business deal, or when you're going to preach a sermon, or when you're going to run the kids group, or when you're going to deal with some big issues in your home, when you're doing big business and there's a deadline and there's pressure, is the first thing you do, pick up the phone and call a friend. Not normally. Normally people just bunker down, get their heads down, and get on with their jobs on their own. Culture in the West, we've grown to idolise efficiency and sacrifice community. Elijah didn't stop when he felt the fear of the letter from Jezebel and, and call a friend and say, you know, what shall I do? He didn't even get on his knees and pray to the Lord and say, Lord, what shall I do? He just got afraid and then he ran. Now, when we are sent into a pressurised environment, we tend to separate from one another. In, in, in the uh, Luke chapter 10, in verse 2, it says, 
Jesus is sending the disciples into a pressurized environment, not a threatening environment, if you like, in the same way that Elijah found himself, but a pressurized environment all the same. And that, that was the, that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Now, if you're going to invite a management consultant into that field, he's going to grid that field out and he's going to apply a worker to every one of those grids to make sure he maximises efficiency. And if those workers are going to start talking to one another, he's going to tell them to be quiet because actually that isn't the way that we're going to do good business here. But the Bible is not a management consultancy. And actually there are 1,626 different verses about togetherness in the scriptures, and that is a significant amount of verses. Because Jesus calls us to live with relationship as a priority, not achievement as a priority. And actually, the sadness I feel around 1 Kings 19 is, is the palpable isolation that Elijah experiences. And it's interesting that very often following a, a move of God or a, a wonderful act of God, those people involved in that can find themselves isolated and alone and sad and disconnected. I, I know as someone who speaks regularly, the come down of, of a moment of real glory, a moment when the, you sense and know the glory and manifestation of the Lord, that sense of like, oh, I'm on my own, the feeling of being attacked, and then the, the, the temptation under pressure to hunker down rather than to call a friend and say, hey, I'm feeling a bit vulnerable. Jesus says in Luke 12, don't store up earthly treasures, store up heavenly ones. Let's not let pressure divide us Let's allow the pressure to provoke us to invest in our relationships. You know, I used to collect my sports trophies when I was a young man, and I put them proudly on my shelf. But I can tell you today, they're pen pots and items of amusement for my children. But I, I used to take my friends for granted, but now I can tell you that I store their numbers on my phone with the reverence of a collector of rare butterflies. See, the kingdom of God is not built on achievement but on relationship and the kingdom of God doesn't sacrifice relationship for achievement especially when the pressure comes on. The second thing I want to point out is that when we are under attack specifically we tend to run for the hills. Jesus says in verse 3 of the Luke 10 passage go on sending you out like lambs amongst wolves and what we know from Elijah's experience is that the wolf uh, if you like, Jezebel is coming after him that day to try and kill him. And again, going into an environment where there is attack, personal attack or personal struggle, is another huge motivator for us to bunker down and isolate ourselves. You know, humans like sheep are herd animals. You know, when the wolf hits the herd, the herd doesn't tend to bunch up, it tends to scatter. We run away. And, you know, our experience of church is very often the same. When a person is facing some sort of personal attack, like Elijah was, when a person is facing some sort of temptation for sin or some personal struggle or difficulty or even illness, rather than running towards the flock, we tend to run off alone. Now, I can't tell you how many times as a church leader, you know, I've said to a colleague, have you seen so-and-so? And I said, no, I haven't seen them for a couple of weeks. And then you go, well, I'll give them a call. You give them a call and they say, oh, no, I've not been around for a few weeks. I say, well, what's the matter? Oh, there's some sin issue or there's some struggle or there's some difficulty. And I just need to, you know, I'm just not in a good place to come to church. I'm not good enough for church. I'm thinking, hold on. What, what, what's going on here? You know, the greatest irony of life is when we need the power of togetherness and we sacrifice it to go and find our own healing. The church is a hospital. It's not a beauty pageant. 
Ecclesiastes 4.9 says, Two are better than one, for they have a good return for their labour. For if one falls down, his companion can lift him up. But pity the one who falls down without another to lift him up. So why run away when togetherness is a remedy? You know, we, our relational health is the confidence we have in the relationships around us to lift us up, to meet our needs where we're in struggle or strife or challenge or under attack. Well, I tell you, it's normally shame and it's normally guilt and it's normally the fear of humiliation that isolates us. I wonder what Elijah felt in that moment. Afraid, he's running away despite having won one of the greatest victories and seeing God move in incredible power. He would have felt humiliated and embarrassed and guilty and that actually am I this weak? I'm no better than my ancestors. Sadly, if we go back into the 1 Kings 19 passage, it says, Elijah was afraid and he ran. And when he came to Beersheba, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. How many times have, we've left, have we left our right-hand man or our right-hand woman behind? Those people who are our confidants and actually just gone off grid and thought, I need to do this alone. I feel so ashamed. I feel so embarrassed. We need to recognise our relational health has called us to share in a gospel in which God builds the church not on the backs of good, independent people without need of him or others, but on the backs of sinners, of broken, of weak people, of the lonely, that they might know his love by the way they love one another. If we reject each other just when we need each other the most, how is a broken and hurting and lonely world going to know that this place, this church, this kingdom, is a place of radical love and radical relationship? Thirdly, and, and, and finally, I want to encourage you to think about our dependence on things rather than people. In verse 4, it says, do not take a purse or bag of sandals in the Luke passage. I find this really interesting. When I leave the house, I always check that I've got the golden three, my wallet, my phone and my keys. Very often I find I get out of the house and I've slammed the door behind me and I've left my keys in the lock and I cycle away and then I, I might get to the office or even just before the office and suddenly realise, oh, I'm not going to be able to get in. I've left my keys in the back of the door again. That is a nightmare, but at least I know where my keys are. If I lose my phone, that's a nightmare. If I lose my wallet, then I'm really freaking out. I wonder what your golden three are. Well, Jesus asked the disciples to leave their golden three behind, their, their bag, their purse, and their sandals. And in the first century, I think they were their money, the resources, and their transport. So leave them behind, Jesus says. You don't, you, I don't want you to take those things with you. I don't want you to be dependent on things. I want you to be dependent on people. Interestingly, in the 1 Kings passage, Elijah also goes into the desert, a place of the greatest hostility, alone. He travels a solid day alone into this desert. Then he comes under a broom tree, which is really just a scrub tree, and he sits down under it for shade. So he's presumably not taken any resources with him. He certainly hasn't taken a tent and there he prays that he might die. He, he's, he is resourceless. I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lies down under the tree and falls asleep. And we know he's got no resources of his own because the angel touches him and wakes him up and says, get up and eat. And there, there is bread and water, what he needs to be sustained. Now, that place of need is so significant. It's so important. Elijah got there in one way and, and, and the disciples get there in another. 
But we need to all recognise the same lesson, that actually we have become far too dependent on our own resources, and that dependency is killing our relational health. In the 21st century, technology isn't just the architect of our intimacies, it can be our intimacies. A Penn State study found that 77% of people agreed that society as a whole relied too much on technology. You know, we, when we think about this, we recognise that actually we've lost sight of our need for one another because we can do everything independently and often technology is the architect of that. You know, we can order a tent in the desert, we can dial Domino's and ask them to deliver us a pizza and we can ask for an extra bottle of Coke and some garlic fries on the side. You know, we can do it all independently of one another. When Jesus sends out the 72, he says, don't take the golden three. Don't take your own sandals. You're going to get sore feet and someone's going to have to wash your feet. That's significant. That's a point of human connection. Don't take your bag. They're your resources. You know, they're, not, they're the things that you need like a cloak for the nighttime. You need to be cold because you're going to need to, someone's going to need to wrap you up. That's another sign of, if you like, the communion that you have with others. It's a significant sign of peace. And thirdly, don't take your wallet because I don't want to buy any food on the road. I want you to be hungry because when you're hungry, someone is going to meet your needs with food. And when we have need, we can connect relationship, relationally because others can meet our needs. You know, this world in which we live, which is, which is so self-orientated, so self-referencing, is so isolating because we've lost sight of the need we have for one another. So when Jesus instructs the disciples to go out with need, He's going out to instruct them to find human connection through the meeting of need. You know, technology has its place in the society, but it's replacing our human relationships. Now, if we don't have the opportunity to see one another's need, we cannot seek to meet one another's need, and therefore we cannot forge that relational health that we're seeking. It's a gift. Our needs are a gift. And that's why running away from one another when we have need is a breaking point to our relational health. And that's why always denying or hiding our threat from one another is also a breaking to our relational health. The gospel's all about demonstrating vulnerability in order that we can experience the strength of relationship, which is ultimately a prophetic sign of the togetherness that the kingdom of God actually offers us. You know, ultimately, the kingdom of God is is a gift. God so loved the world that he met its need through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ in order that we might have togetherness with God. If we don't do the one thing we're called to do, which is acknowledge that we're sinners and call for God's grace and mercy, we cannot receive the togetherness because actually we've not gone to the Father with relationship in our heart. As soon as we say, help me, Lord, we're saying, meet me, Lord, and then isolation gives way to connection. You know, Google doesn't love you. Facebook doesn't love you. you know, Twitter doesn't love you. Instagram doesn't love you. Even Match.com doesn't love you. But Jesus loves you. He, he, he wants to be your intimacy. He wants to invite you to deep relationship with him. And, and out of the overspill of your relationship with him, you're invited to relationship with others. To say, actually, I'm known and I'm loved. I want to share and meet others' needs as others meet my needs in Jesus' name. Now, relational health is not some nice to have, like some Zen well-being experience. It's not some sort of unnecessary extra in life where you can say, oh, well, I'm, I'm really relationally healthy. 
you know, it, it's what comes about when we seek to meet each other's needs for human connection, particularly when we're wounded or struggling like we are now in a global pandemic. You know, Charles Darwin said that human tears were purposeless. They were purposeless. And that makes perfect sense to me if your belief is that human life is really all about the expediency of our procreation. I can see that human tears have very little to add if that is the purpose of our being. But if the purpose of our life is togetherness with God and love for others and therefore connection with them, then our tears make perfect sense to me. Psychology professor Jonathan Rottenberg said, crying signals to yourself and others that there's some important problem that is at least temporarily beyond your ability to cope. Your tears are the ultimate sign of my need. And when I reveal my tears to others, I'm inviting others to connect with me relationally to meet my need. And therefore, I know I'm known and loved and held. And they know that they have value too because they can bring something to relationship with me. You know, some psychologists and scientists even believe that our, our relational tears are dim, different to our tears uh, for washing the eye. So our emotional tears are chemically different to the tears that we might shed when we're chopping onions. Those emotional tears have more proteins in them that make the tear more viscose, more sticky. And what that means is the tear holds its shape and it tracks much, much more slowly down the face. Isn't that remarkable that our tears, our emotional tears might be chemically different for the sake of eliciting a response from the other to say, you are not alone. You are loved. You are precious. I've got you. I'm with you. We're in this together. Don't worry about the threat. Don't try and run away. We're going to lift one another up in this. We're all part of this kingdom family. We cry emotional tears because... We're called to relational health. That health is not a measurement on a scale. It's merely the ability to connect in vulnerability. And it all began with Jesus. And he said, I know that you need me. Do you know that you need me? Yes, Lord, I need you. Come and be with me. Meet my need and help me to meet the needs of others in your name. You know, this is the power of togetherness. This is what relational health really looks like. It's the power of connection through vulnerability and compassion. Relational health is not a state of independence from everyone else. It's a state of interdependence where we need others and others need us. And in all this, we can say that his love is made perfect in our weakness. And so we see his amazing love manifest here to Elijah. He lay down and fell asleep and all at once the angel touched him and said get up and eat and he looked around and there by his head was cake a bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water and he ate and he drank and then he lay down again think about the difference between Elias, Elijah's lying down in anguish and then his lying down in peace that's relational health that's the transformation that Jesus can offer all of us today God bless you all. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from the King's Church Mid-Sussex. To connect with us online, visit tkc.org.uk. We hope you'll join us again soon.